and start there with Gehenna. In the Old Testament, there is no word for heaven or hell. In the Old Testament, they're not the people, the Jews aren't aware of heaven and hell. When you die, they go to a place called Sheol, the abode of the dead. And so Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah and Moses and everyone's in Sheol, the abode of the dead. And they don't really know what happens to these souls in Sheol, the abode of the dead. When Jesus dies on Calvary, he descends into the dead. When we say in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell or he descended into the dead, we're referring to Sheol, that he descended into Sheol and he freed all of these people who could now go to heaven or those for hell off to hell. So Jesus is using this word Gehenna because there's no word for hell yet. And so he's painting this picture about this place of everlasting torment. And Gehenna is the city dump for the city of Jerusalem. It's down in this valley off the backside of the city. And this is where not only to throw your refuse and garbage, but this is where the corpse of animals are thrown and even human corpses are thrown there, people who were not buried. And so it's this incredibly smelly place. It's a place of worms, as Jesus says. And there's, there's always kind of a, an ether cloud or steam rising from all of these corpses and things down there, etc. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can go to Gehenna, uh, and there are still those worms. There are these great big black centipede-like worms. Biologists don't understand what they're eating that they would continue to live there like they do. They seem to be everywhere crawling out of the earth and out of the walls of this valley. So Jesus is saying, there's this thing in everlasting life, like Gehenna, where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched, and you'll smolder and suffer there for eternity for your sins. All right, so this is new to them. They're like, whoa, we're going to suffer in the next life for our sins? And Jesus will talk about the road to perdition being wide and broad, and he brings up a manifestation of hell multiple times. What's interesting about this is Jesus doesn't say, if you sin in this life, you'll be punished in this life. He makes no mention of any consequences for our sins in this life. The consequences that he's saying are for our sins are in the next life. For God sees all and knows all, and with God there is perfect justice. And praise God that there is, because in all of human history, the vast majority of murderers have gotten away with murder. Cain murders Abel. He didn't experience a death sentence for it. He didn't even go to jail for it. He was cast out. But think of all the people down through the ages who have been murdered. The vast majority of the people who did it got away with it. All the women who have been sexually assaulted, those guys, the vast majority have gotten away with it and will be the end of the world. What about all the people who have stolen money? The vast majority of them have gotten away with it and will get away with it in this life, but not in the next. And Jesus is saying, it's the next life that our focus has to be on. And there's a beautiful life in paradise. And he'll paint that picture for them. But today he's painting the picture of a torment that they do not want to endure for eternity. How do you go to Gehenna? Well, sin. Sin does. But it's more complicated than our own personal sins. He begins his story by taking a small child, placing it on his knee, and says, Whoever leads another person into sin 
It would be better for him if a millstone, which is a great big heavy stone, were put around his neck and he'd be thrown into the ocean where you drowned. Better that than go to Gehenna. Well, begs this question, do my sins cause other people to sin? And the answer is yes. It's surprisingly yes. We think, well, wait a minute. I was looking at porn. Nobody knew I was looking at porn. I mean, what the heck? I mean, that's just between me. I mean, that's not harming anyone. It's harming the people who are producing porn who are dependent upon you looking at it. And if you didn't look at it, they wouldn't be producing it and they wouldn't be going to hell. Then, of course, there's the, oh, well, then what does viewing porn do to me? Well, it stunts my relationships with other people, my wife. I, as a single man, I have a hard time relating to women because I'm doing, looking at this, and, and then I'm closing in on myself. I feel guilty. I'm not going to Mass now. You can see how this thing has real consequences. But in the moment, you're thinking nobody knows. There are no consequences. There are, even in this life, let alone the next. But these consequences are ongoing, aren't they? Every one of our sins has consequences that lead other people into sins. For example, oh, I just tell little white lies. Really? Believe me, if you're married, your spouse knows you tell little white lies. And they probably will too, because you do. Because of your example. And now you've just led somebody else into sin. How about too much time on the TV or the internet? Say, well, whatever, I'm just relaxing and da-da-da. And there's a place for relaxing, and we need relaxing. Not necessarily TV or internet, but we need to relax and downtime. But when we're spending too much time, then we're not meeting our responsibilities, which is meaning that our spouse or our kids or the people at work who are depending upon us meeting our responsibilities not being met, now they're becoming resentful and they're entering into their own sin because of our neglect. When we speak other ill of other people, we complain about other people, blah, blah, blah. Don't other people join in? Maybe they're not going to speak ill about that person, but they've got somebody that they want to speak ill about, and now you've just invited them to do the same. When we don't attend Mass, go, well, I just don't want to go to Mass. It only affects me. No, it doesn't. It's such a bad example for our spouse and our kids and our siblings and everyone else. You don't go to Mass. It means that you've just given somebody else permission not to go to Mass. There is no sin that we can do that doesn't affect other people in a terrible way. So Jesus says to this child, don't lead this child into sin. That child is anyone that we lead into sin. But there's another part of this parable that Jesus speaks of. And it's of this mutilation business. He says, "If it's better that you go into eternal life without two hands than to go into Gehenna with two hands... Better that you, that you go into heaven with one eye than to fall into hell with two. He's saying, those things that lead you into sin, and he's using really obvious metaphors of hands and ears and eyes, but the things that lead you into sin, stop being around those things. Don't, be, don't allow those near occasions to lead you into sin. 
And so figure out what's leading you into sin and avoid it. And so this near occasions of sin. We say, well, I'm just on the internet. There's nothing sinful about being on the internet, which is true in itself. But too much time on the internet means that we're neglecting our responsibilities at work or at home or somewhere, which is a sin. And if that's been our pattern over and over again on the internet, well, then the internet is a near occasion of sin let alone looking at sites we shouldn't look at. Well, maybe I can only be on the internet if somebody is in the room standing behind me. That's the only... Then I won't spend too much time and I won't look at the bad things. But if I'm there all alone and there's no accountability, I've just put myself in the near occasion of sin. This is where Jesus would say, if the internet causes you to sin, don't look at it. Watching TV, or of course the wasting of time, etc., not meeting obligations, well then maybe shouldn't watch TV. Or maybe limit yourself to two hours a week and that's it. Figure out what evening you're going to watch TV and that's it. Two hours and no more time. Being around people who lead us into sin, there's that old adage, if you sleep with dogs you get fleas. Hang out with people who gossip all the time, chances are excellent, you'll gossip too. Hanging out with people who tell bad jokes and swear, there's a really get, there's a real big possibility you will too. Out of the 3,000 confessions I hear a year, 17 years of being a priest, I can't tell you how many construction worker guys say, I swear on the job because everyone does. Drinking too much, this person drinks too much, well, I drink too much when I'm with them. Young couples kind of dating and whatnot, and then they fall into fornication. They know now that if they're together alone, they'll fall into fornication. So no more being alone together until you're married. These are these kind of analogies that Jesus speaks of when he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Be aware of the near occasions of sin, because they lead us into sin. Not that the thing itself is bad, But the way in which we engage that person or that thing leads us to that place. So we need to become very aware of what leads me into sin and to avoid it. And then to be very aware that my sins set bad example for others to engage in sin too. There's a whole other side of this that Jesus doesn't raise here. But I'll raise it for us, because I think it's just as helpful in helping us to be good Christians. And it's to recognize that our goodness causes others to be good too. And that being in the near occasion of goodness leads us into goodness as well. So for example, when you go to Mass... Doesn't that set good example for your spouse and your children and your parents and your siblings and your neighbors? Sure it does. Even if they don't go, they think, well, she's going. Maybe I should go. No, I'm not going to go. And I resent that she even goes. Good that you're disturbing his conscience. It should be disturbed. It's doing good for him. When you pray and others see you pray and they know you pray, doesn't that help them? Not only the grace of the prayers help them, but that example helps them. When you're going to confession, doesn't that set a good example for others to think about going to confession too? Having their sins removed? 
When we're temperate, when we're patient, when we're kind, when we're courageous, persevering, when we're hardworking and diligent, don't all those things set good example for other people to emulate? They do. They do. So being good leads others into goodness, and being evil leads other people into evil. We're connected, and there's no way around it. And then your occasions that give rise to goodness. If I'm going to be a man of prayer, then I need to have some silence in my life. Because if it's all screens going on and noise going on, and then suddenly that stops and I'm supposed to pray, I can't concentrate. So I need some silence in my life. I need to drive my car around with the radio off. I need to walk in the house and not turn the TV on. Let there be silence. Let there be stillness. Because that creates the near occasion of being able to think about God. Think with clarity about my day and my life and what I'm doing. Silence and stillness creates the near occasion of goodness. If I go to daily Mass, doesn't that create the near occasion for me to become a better person? The grace of that Mass, the sacrifice of being here at 7 a.m. in the morning? What about the near occasion of spiritual reading? If I were to have spiritual reading in my life every day, wouldn't that give rise to me becoming a much better, holier human being? But I've got to create that occasion. And it goes on and on and on with these ways in which, both for good or for ill, we influence other people. And we can either create the occasions that lead to ill or the occasions that lead to good. But those choices are ours to make. And by the grace of God, God will help us to make them if we'll try. So Jesus doesn't come to the earth to earth to save himself. He's God. He's already saved. He came to earth to save you and me. And that's what he wants us to do too. So it's not enough that he's teaching the apostles how they can save their soul. He's teaching the apostles how they can save their soul and other souls too. And that's what Jesus wants us to learn. Is that our actions, no matter what they are, or you're going to help or hurt other people, get either to heaven or to Gehenna. And he doesn't want us to go to Gehenna. He wants us all in heaven. So don't tie millstones around people's necks. Do your best to overcome your sins because they're causing other people to sin. Do your best to place yourself in the near occasions of goodness that they might lead you to do good things and in turn that leads others to do good things. And then one day, one day, we won't have to struggle anymore. One day in the kingdom of heaven there will be no more difficulties. There will be no more sacrifices, no more suffering. We will have made it and we will have brought others with us. In the meantime, know that Jesus is with us and his grace is upon you to help you and to help you to help others.